So in middle school, I decided that I wanted to join the town football team. So I joined the team and during the first practice, the coach would go around and put pieces of athletic tape on our helmets to identify ourselves. And so he came up to me, put the tape on my helmet and wrote out what I thought was Taylor, but in fact was the word girl. And I thought at first, I was like, okay, yeah, this is true. I am the only girl on this all boys tackle football team. All right. But as I came to realize that that piece of tape and that label started to really become a barrier. I would have to work a lot harder to achieve respect of my coaches, my teammates, and truly earn my spot on that field. So I did, I worked hard, I worked strategically watching and learning. And I eventually became a starter. I became friends with a lot of guys on the team and those coaches became really influential mentors. I thought I had achieved this sense of belonging. But what I realized that even though that piece of tape was gone and that label of girl wasn't there, all the stereotype and baggage that label brought was still there and would continue to be a barrier of my true belonging. Well, have you ever been pushed beyond your capacity? I wanna take you to the end of the world for a minute. And I'm not talking about a specific time, I'm actually talking about a specific place, Torres del Paine in Patagonia. Patagonia is in the southernmost part of South America, in Chile and Argentina. And it's nicknamed the end of the world because, well, it's about as far south as you can get without, of course, jumping over to Antarctica. Well, Andrew and I decided to go, uh, as one does, hiking uh, to the end of the world. And it took us about nine flights, four bus rides, and 40 miles of hiking to get there and back. I'm not gonna lie to you, I did not know what I was getting myself into, so I'll let you go ahead and guess who does the like vacation planning in our household. <laughs> it's not me. Well, it was quite a commitment to get to. I cannot even begin to express what it was like to be there in this place in person, surrounded by these granite mountains and glacial lakes was truly incredible. And each night we camped at a different place, which meant that each day brought a new hike with brand new stunning views. It was truly unforgettable. But we will probably never forget the last 24 hours in particular. Not gonna lie, for a hiking trip, our accommodations up until this point were like fairly cushy. This night, we stayed in a tent on the side of the hill in the pouring rain. And we were staying there because we were at the trailhead of a trail that led up to what was supposed to be one of the most epic views in the whole park. And so we wanted to go see the sunrise. So we set our alarm, we wake up at 4 a.m. in the pitch dark, in the freezing cold, and it is still pouring rain. So we have this moment, you know that moment, where you're like, are we really gonna do this? I think we were motivated by pride more than anything. We're like, we gotta do it, you know? You can't like not go to Patagonia, or, and you know, you can't go to Patagonia and not go on this hike. So we get going, and we get our ring gear on, we get our breakfast going, and we start our way up the mountain. In the dark, in the cold, in the rain, just the two of us at the end of the world. It's hard to explain exactly what that hike was like. It was honestly one of the most like 
physically grueling experiences of my life. The hike was certainly hard, but what was really hard was like monitoring our temperature because we're soaking wet from the rain. We got sweat going on. We're hot. We're cold. We don't know what's happening. Do we keep going? It's still raining. We honestly didn't really have time to really come up with a plan or see exactly where we were because if we stopped for any length of time, the rain sweat situation that was going on would freeze and that would not be a good thing. So we just kept putting one foot in front of the other, hoping that we were on the right track and looking for the next reflector that told us that we were on the right track. So we finally make it to the last quarter mile of the hike. And we're out of the tree line now, and we are full on scaling rocks. And hours have gone by, and we've been in the dark, and it's still been raining. But as we get to that last quarter mile, that pouring rain begins to turn to a full on snowstorm. So we are like scrambling up these rocks in a snowstorm. It was simultaneously one of the most miserable experiences of my life and also like enchanting. It was like we were in this Narnia-esque world that was truly incredible. It was a very, you know, emotionally confusing time for me. <laughs> well, as we kept climbing and the dawn began to break, we could see that the sunrise that had been motivating us this whole time was not going to happen. So we're like, are we going to keep going or not? Pressing forward, we finally make it to the top. This morning, the passage that we find ourselves in is a view worth the trek. The trail is exquisite in beauty. It's totally otherworldly and excruciating in every way. Like the trail, it's a passage that begins in the foothills, and before you know it, it implores you up to the summit, to the highest peak, even in the middle of a snowstorm. This is a picture of what we were hoping to see, a truly epic view at sunrise. This is a picture of what we actually saw. Majestic in like a different way, you know? That's what we told ourselves. We were up there for like a hot second and then just, you know, had to get down because we couldn't stop. We were freezing cold up there. Well, all fall we've been talking about community. And sometimes life and community can feel like we trekked all this way with not that much to show for it. But sometimes when the wind is just right and the clouds burn off, you can get a glimpse of heaven. This text not only draws us upward towards an incredible summit, but it takes us to and beyond our capacity. The text I'm talking about is Romans 12, uh, 9 through 21. And all fall, we've been considering the meaning of true belonging and what it means for us to be a community of true belonging, not just as the body of the church, but for us, Grace Chapel as in particular. And we've searched the scriptures to discover it, finding ourselves often in the book of Romans. And we've discovered that we are to be a community that is not to be defined by its boundaries, but by Jesus at the center. And we're a community that transcends itself through the practice of worship that continually transforms to be its best self, that serves the body as opposed to just consuming, that gathers around the communi communion table, reminding us that we are meant to cross the boundaries that divide us, and that we are to seek beauty in politics and ethics and lifestyle. 
Well, this morning, we'll discover a picture of community that fosters true belonging through sincere love. And it's a love, we'll discover, that presses us beyond our capacity. Do you need a love that is more than you and I are naturally capable of? Aren't we needing that? A love that's more than a feeling, a love that you can't fall out of, a love that helps us cross the boundaries that divide us, a love that even those who seek to do us harm can't cloud out. Don't you all too often come to the limits of other people's love? And moreover, don't you all too often come to the limits of your own love? Well, I want to give us a moment now and think, what is love? As, as we hear that word, what do we think the meaning of love is? Maybe you're like me and think of uh, that Night of the Roxbury movie, that song, you know, that comes up. I won't sing it for you. But um, so what is love? I'm going to give you just a couple moments to actually turn to a neighbor and just share the first thing that comes to mind. It doesn't need to be a brilliant thing. Just what's the first thing that comes to mind? What is love? Well, with that understanding or maybe, maybe something you shared or something that you heard your neighbor share of love, I won't make you uh, turn to your neighbor for this one, but just ask yourself, how well do you love? How good are you at loving? Well, the passage that we're in today describes what love is and how we go about loving. And Paul is talking very specifically about sincere love. So this is a love that is without hypocrisy. This is a love that's not just like giving the appearance of love, like nicey-nice kind of love. This is real, raw, hard love that he's talking about. And as we'll discover in these passages, he has a lot that he has to say that makes for sincere love. So I'm actually going to give us a moment before we dive in to consider the very words of Paul here. You'll actually find uh, on the back side of your copy of Inside Grace a copy of the passage. You can also find it uh, in our app and our social media page. It's highlighted in our story this morning. And we'll also have it up on the screens. So I'll read it first uh, through together for us, and we'll come back to it in a few moments, and I'll give you a chance on your own to read through it. But as you hear it, I invite you to listen if there's a word or phrase that sticks out to you in particular from this passage. So feel free to follow along, or if it helps you to listen, feel free to close your eyes. So listen to the word of the Lord. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Well, just take a moment and note if there was a word or phrase that stuck out to you from these passages. We'll return to these words in a moment. But let me give you a little bit of context to the book of Romans. So Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Christians living in Rome. And he's writing very intentionally because his hope was that the Christians living there would be his base of operations for missions. So he's writing pretty thoroughly and very carefully about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, what it is that Christ has done for us, and what it is to live in light of the love and grace in Christ. And up until this point in Romans, uh, Paul has kind of laid out the goodness and justness of God, and that over and against our goodness and justice. Uh, But yet, he describes how God has pursued humanity with love, culminating in the coming of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. That is the ultimate picture of God's love, and that is ultimately saving grace for us. And so Paul, here is, there's a turning point in this chapter where Paul begins to describe what it means then for our lives. What does life with God and life with one another look like in light of this? The NRSV entitles this particular set of passages, Marks of the True Christian. So in other words, this is really important stuff, what Paul is talking about. And you'd think that Paul would be like crystal clear in what he's trying to say and really kind of drive home the point of what sincere love is. But I don't know if you noticed it, the passage is kind of all over the place. You can't anticipate what Paul's going to say next. There's no real structure, at least in the way that our modern minds think of structure, of ideas building on ideas in more of a linear fashion. So I think this signals something to the reader. I think Paul certainly wants his readers to think about what he's saying, but I actually think more than anything, Paul wants his readers to react to what he's saying. So I wanna give you another moment to look over the passage for yourself. You can look at it if you have a Bible or on the Inside Grace, and I'll also scroll through on the, on the screens here. But as you read, read it through the lens of the word or phrase uh, that came to you, if it did during the first reading and see if there's something that God may be wanting to point out to you in this passage. So go ahead and read through and notice, what is your reaction?
take a moment and note if there was something in here that you reacted to and note what your reaction was. I'm gonna give you another few seconds here to, so again, turn back to your neighbor. And would you share that? Just share very briefly, what did you react to from this passage and what was your reaction? You can go ahead. go ahead and finish the thought or sentence that you're on. <coughs> well, it just so happens that I was actually asked to preach on this very passage with our community of women here at Grace a couple weeks ago. So either God's trying to help me in my procrastination tendencies with preparing a message, or God's really trying to drive something home in my heart from this passage. Either way, I've been sitting in this passage for a long time, and it's actually been written uh, in the mirror in my room uh, for over a month now. So I've been sitting and chewing on these words. And can I tell you something? My reaction, the more I sit with these words, the more uncomfortable these verses make me. Because who can love like this? Who can love like this? This truly is a love that is beyond human capacity. So there's a lot of ideas that Paul lays out here. But as I've been sitting with this, I think there are three behaviors that I hear reflected in this passage of what it means to love sincerely that I think are particularly relevant for us today. So here are the three ways forward for us. I think to be people to love sincerely. The first is get close to one another. The second is choose trust. And the third is love wildly, knowing goodness wins. So I'm gonna walk through each of these, unpacking them a bit, uh, each of these behaviors that leads to a community of sincere love, and also name some of those challenges that I think tend to break down community and maybe make it challenging for us to love in this way. So first, get closer to one another. Consider yourselves here at the foothills of the passage. So here, these, this first cluster of verses, verse 9 through 13, really describes a kind of community that is very intimate and tender towards one another. Did you notice that? In verse 10, the root word for what's translated here as devotion and love are words that were typically applied to the kind of love amongst family members. So what Paul's saying here is that the spiritual family is to have the marks of the best earthly family, a kind of love that puts the other above themselves and looks out for the best interest of one another. And then in verse 11 and 12, Paul describes the kind of community that serves God prayerfully with earnest passion, meaning it's a community that puts their own agendas or pursuits to the side to pursue those things that matter to God 
Things like extending honor and dignity to one another, pursuing justice for all, generously offering gifts and resources to one another, even when it's hard and even when it's challenging. And in verse 13, we discover we show this kind of familial love through the practice of hospitality, extending both to friends and to strangers, sharing food, clothes, drink, housing. In other words, the picture of community that Paul is describing here is a community that requires us to get closer to one another. Paul's really addressing the quality of relationships in the body, which I think begs a question for us this morning. Do we, even in the body, have a hard time getting close to one another? Well, here at Grace, we have five generations represented, spread across five campuses. What does it look like to do life together? And of these five generations, there are countless cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities represented, different political parties and theological convictions. Our teenagers alone represent over 55 different towns in the area, never mind how many middle and high schools they represent. And even here in our church body, we don't think the same, look the same, act the same, vote the same, worship the same, or dress the same. And we're in the context of a society that has sorted itself into subgroups based on those very things. So how do we get closer to people in a world that has sorted itself away from each other? How do we find our way back to one another? Well, Brene Brown is a researcher and she's written a book entitled Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. And this book actually inspired the title for this series, True Belonging. And an antidote that she suggests to this sorting and isolating of groups that we think will bring us real belonging but has actually created far more loneliness and isolation. The antidote she suggests is to get closer to one another. She writes, people are hard to hate close up, move in. What Paul is describing in these verses is a love that loves the individual. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. A love for humankind that doesn't dare to get close to one another isn't really sincere love. In order to sincerely love, you have to zoom in like you would with a camera, in person. As Brene puts it, we live in a world that tells us the following. I don't have to listen to any point of view that's different from mine, that I don't like, that I think is wrong, that will hurt my feelings, or that is not up to my standards of political correctness. Even in a church setting, can it be hard to combat this mindset? And can it be confusing when we experience conflict? That's why that we get into this place, we're trying to avoid conflict, and so it can be confusing when conflict and messiness and hard situations arise. But it's exactly those things that push us out of our comfort zone that happens when we get close. Maybe this looks like parking your car next to another car that has the opposing bumper, political bumper sticker uh, on their bumper and doing it without rolling your eyes. Or maybe it means asking a teenager to show you the meme they're laughing about during service without thinking, kids these days. Or maybe it means coming back next week, even though you felt offended. Who or what do you tend to move away from? 
Because I think it might be exactly that person or that thing that you may be invited to get closer to. So how do we practically press into the uncomfortable? I think sometimes the most courageous thing that we can say in a hard conversation or an uncomfortable conversation is simply, tell me more. Tell me more. Help me understand why this is so important to you. Help me understand why you don't agree with this particular idea. This is love. Listening and seeking to understand as opposed to trying to prove our own amazingly insightful perspective and point. (laughs) No, I am not guilty of that, thank you very much. And notice, going back to the verses here for a moment, that seamlessly woven into this passage about love for one another is a love for God. Never lack in zeal, be devoted, serve the Lord, be patient in prayer. Paul wouldn't say all of this if he didn't expect this to be challenging. We need God's help in this. And the word that Paul uses for love here in verse nine is the word agape. And so far, Paul has only used this word agape to describe God's love. But now he's using this word to talk about the kind of love that's extended outward from human being to fellow human being. So this love that he's describing that we are to display really is outside of, beyond our capacity because it's a love that is rooted in the love of God. So he's saying that love and God are intricately connected. If we want to love well, we need to allow the love of God to take root in our hearts. And if we want the love of God to take root in our hearts, we have to learn to love others well. And that requires us to get close to one another. Well, picking up in verse 14, this kind of love that Paul is talking about is similar actually to what Jesus is talking about on the Sermon of the Mount blessing those who are against you. To bless means to speak well of, to ask God to favor. Let's talk about a love that goes beyond normal boundaries of human capacity, right? We are not in the foothills anymore. Things are starting to get harder as we proceed through. And in verse 15, we're instructed to make other people's joys our joys and other people's sorrows our sorrows, to feel with people in a word Empathy, which is different than sympathy, which is feeling for people. So the invitation is empathy. And I think empathy is a little bit harder than we may think because to make another person's celebrations our celebrations can stir up feelings in us of feeling like we've been forgotten or we've been left behind or feelings of jealousy or envy. And feeling other people's pain requires us to sit in pain with others. And that can be uncomfortable and that can be vulnerable. It requires us to trust. And it turns out vulnerability is a key ingredient in trusting. Check out this definition of trust. Choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. Andrew and I have been married for almost two and a half years now. And we often get the question, how long did you date before you were married? To which we typically reply, um, it's kind of a complicated question with a complicated answer. And here's why. The truth is I did not make life easy for Andrew, okay? I took like hard to get to the extreme and he took patience to like a whole other level. I think that there's maybe some advice in that for some gentlemen in the place, but I'm not sure, maybe not. 
But the truth is, it took me a really long time to say yes to a relationship with him. I've had some painful things happen in my life and have had years of counseling that have helped me to move forward. But trust was not something that came easy in our relationship. And I remember a pivotal conversation that we, we had where he was sharing how hard it was for him and that he didn't really know what to do with the pain that I had been sharing with him. And when he shared that, I remember at first feeling hurt. And then I started feeling guilty. And then I started to try to come up with solutions for like how to you know, make the dynamic between us better. And the truth was is that Andrew wasn't looking for me to do or say any of that. He was simply wanting to share the pain that he was experiencing and trusting me with that in the same way that I had shared my pain and trusted him. We have a hard time as humans sitting in each other's pain and not rushing to solution or guilt. But it's exactly in sharing and holding each other's pain that trust and real connection is forged. And I'm not just talking about doing this with a significant other or with a close friend, although maybe that's where it starts. If we want to find a way forward in our community, in our church, in our society, in love, we have to do better at mourning with those who are mourning and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And in today's world, I think empathy in particular in this way across the gender divide is a particular challenge. Poet and writer D.H. Lawrence once remarked that the future of humanity will be decided not by relations between nations, but by relations between women and men. I think we bear particular wounds in our human family when it comes to our gender, our sexuality, and our relational intimacy and all of the stereotypes and pain that it brings. We hear echoes of this in Taylor's story that we heard in the opening video. And in a world that's overwhelmed by abuse and exploitation, Paul's call to love in this way, to choose trust, is needed more than ever. To rejoice with those who rejoice and especially to weep or mourn with those who are in pain, without judgment, and without jumping to a solution. You think this is hard. Let's go on to the final peak here of this passage. So what does sincere love look like, picking up in verse 17? It looks like responding to hatred with kindness, embodying what is right, beautiful, honest, and honorable to all, cultivating peace whenever humanly possible, not answering wrong with revenge, but trusting that God will ultimately work in the hearts of evildoers. And in verse 20, this radical love that we embody in tangible ways, so offering those things to others that help them thrive or live, could heap burning coals on his head. Or in other words, awaken him or her to love. And the final punch, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't overcome evil by winning arguments. We don't overcome evil by avoiding each other. We don't overcome evil by hating. We've reached the summit and the end of ourselves, I think. 
But it's like Paul's whispering, trust me, it's worth the trek. The trek gives us a glimpse of, of love that even evil cannot overcome. Could you use some unovercomable love in your life? Because in Jesus, goodness really does win. Which brings us to this final characteristic of sincere love, that we are to love wildly, knowing that goodness really does win. A wild love is a zealous love, a passionate love, an unstoppable love. A love that loves despite the wrong that has been done to you or ones that you love or ones that you count on your side. That is a love that really is beyond human capacity. Now know that loving does not exclude holding accountable or drawing boundaries. It doesn't allow yourself to be victimized or abused by another person. But it might mean asking God to remove the hate or anger in your heart. This brings us to a landing place for us this morning. That I think that we love beyond our capacity when we put ourselves in situations that are beyond our capacity. Because I think it's when we stretch ourselves beyond our capacity, that's when Christ can meet us. Christ can fill in the gaps between our capacity and the call to love in this way. And it's not until we risk getting closer despite our fear or contempt or choose trust despite our skepticism or choose to love wildly, believing goodness wins, even though we're afraid that evil has triumphed. I think it's then when we press ourselves beyond those capacities that Christ can fill in the gaps. If you hold your finger close to your skin, you can, even, even though there's no contact, you can perceive that it's there. It's kind of like atomic perception. I think Christ's kind of like that. Present in the gaps between our capacity and our call. This mysterious energy that takes place when the two get closer together. We can't wait for the perfect moment to love in this way and to extend ourselves in this way. We have to jump, trusting that Christ will help us. Well, in a moment, we'll have the opportunity to receive communion together. And in the early church, the Lord's Supper was actually celebrated as part of what was called the agape meal or the love feast. And this meal gave believers an opportunity to strengthen bonds of harmony and goodwill and forgive past disputes. It's an opportunity for them to practice getting closer, choosing trust, loving wildly, despite evil that they may be experiencing. So we don't have an opportunity to share a full-blown meal together. I could totally go for some pancakes right now. But it's in that spirit that I invite us to the table knowing that our love for God goes hand in hand with our love and communion and experience of one another. So in that spirit, we're going to do communion a little differently this morning. And you'll be invited to come up in a few moments to the table, but the invitation is to come up with someone else and not just walk up with them. You'll come up either in pairs or as a group to the table and the servers themselves. Maybe it's someone that you came with that you come, that you come up with. Or maybe there's someone that you're sitting around or that you've sat near for years that you can invite to come up with you. Or maybe you came alone and you come up with someone that you've never met before. Or maybe you're here with others and there's someone you see alone that you can grab to bring on up with you.
Or maybe you came as a family and you want, can want to come up to the table together as a family. Or maybe you enjoy, you're, invite others to join your family for this morning. So you'll come up to the station together and take the bread and the cup together as a symbol that in order to love beyond our capacity, we have to put ourselves in situations that are beyond our capacity, aka out of our comfort zone, aka different than how we typically do it. Jesus has shown us this kind of love that we're talking about. He has shown us this kind of trek. If you want to know what the view from the top looks like, look at Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the way that he's seeking to be present with each of us and extend his unending love. And so I invite you to allow this to be a moment to let Christ meet you. Hiking up that mountain was one of the hardest things I've done outdoors. And as you can see, it was not picture perfect, but it really did shape me, and it shaped Andrew and I, and we'll never forget it. I think our world needs some that's the hardest thing I've ever done kind of love. Real, put your one foot in front of the other. I have rain, sweat on every inch of my body kind of love. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it, kind of love. I might not catch a view, but I know the journey is worth it, kind of love. Our world needs it. Our community needs it. This church needs it. I need it. You need it. So may we put ourselves in situations that are beyond our capacity so that Christ's love that really is beyond our capacity may be realized more and more in our midst. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for uh, these words from your scripture that give us a picture of a love that is unfathomable. But God, this is the invitation that you have extended to your people. We pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us courage, give us per perseverance to be people who love like this. Give us grace when we inevitably fail and give us strength to get back up again and to keep loving. So be with us now, God. We pray that you would meet us in these moments with your love and with your grace. It's your name that we ask these things. Amen.